Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, Chief Commerce Strategy Officer and Publicist, and Scott Wingo, CEO of Get Spiffy and co-founder of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 263 being recorded on Wednesday, May 12th, 2021. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg. And as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Well, Jason, it would not be a Jason Scott show if we didn't talk a little bit about Amazon. And for all you Amazon lovers out there, this whole episode is 100% Amazon. In fact, when you think of Amazon, the book that is the defining book about Amazon is called The Everything Store, one of my favorite books. And it's by this dude I know, Brad Stone. Well, we have some exciting news. Brad has a follow-up book called Amazon Unbound, and we are really excited to have him on the Jason Scott Show to talk about the book and all things Amazon. Welcome to the show, Brad. Thank you, guys. Uh, it's great to be here. Oh, my God. We are we are thrilled to have you. I'm pretty sure that uh, when we put together the show schedule for the year, Scott circled this date on his calendar um, back in back in January. He's so excited about Amazon books. Well, yeah, let it's me close to May 4th, which is also one of my favorite things. <laughs> let me just say also, <laughs> you know, I've been covering Amazon for, um, you know, probably 20 years to date, all of us. And, um, you know, through the years, I can count on one hand, like the people who've been like my guides. Um, and you know, both of you guys have been like tremendous sources of insight over the years. Um, Scott, like when I was at the Times, I would always bug you for insight. And Jason, when I think you were at Retail Geek, um, the same. And so it's just great to great. It was, I've been a fan of the podcast and it's great to now be a, um, a guest. We, we are thrilled to have you. Uh, we're, we, I want to jump in, uh, but for the, the casual, our, our core listeners are super familiar with you to be quite honest, Brad, but for the casual listener um, who maybe isn't familiar with you when you are not writing Amazon uh books what what is your day job can you give us I, a I am a, an editor at Bloomberg News and I I actually run the technology team at Bloomberg and so that's 65 uh journalists around the world who cover the big tech companies and the disruptive startups and venture capital and cybersecurity and cybercrime and um it's a great gig um Bloomberg's a great organization. I've written three books while I'm there. They're really supportive. And we have a TV show. We do a podcast. We do a newsletter. Um, you can find it all at Bloomberg.com slash tech. And it's it's a really great team. That is awesome. And can you tell us how you sort of got the original Amazon bug uh, that, that I assume triggered the first book? So, you know, I'm at the New York Times in the late, 2000, first decade of the 2000s. What do we call that? The 2000, the O's. And um, I'm, I'm writing about the Kindle and I'm calling up, you know, Scott Wingo every time uh, uh, they have earnings or some announcement to try to make sense of it all. And, I, and then eventually, I think I sort of decided I was looking for another book. I, I had written a, one book that was not well received. It was about robots. And I was looking for like the you know, the, the, uh, the makeup project, the dignity restoration project. And I just, you know, saw that there were Facebook books and Apple books and Google books. 
And um, and no one had, I felt, had done a great job with Amazon. And I was the Amazon reporter at the Times. And the Kindle had 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 kind of upended the book publishing industry. And Amazon, maybe for the first time since the dot-com boom, was sort of seen as interesting and disruptive. And I had no foresight that this was like the defining juggernaut company of our time or that Bezos would be the wealthiest person in the world. It was it was simply like it it felt like a little bit of a clear avenue for me to you know try it again to, to be an author and and to take on this really complicated company. So that was the inspiration for the first book. And you know, and then I, I know you're probably wondering like why why the heck am I such a glutton for punishment that I would do it again? <laughs> and simply the story just kept on evolving. And, you know, I had written about the Kindle company, but it was the Alexa company and the $100 billion company was the trillion dollar company and the marketplace had been globalized and they had bought Whole Foods and acquired a, a transportation arm, built a transportation arm, I should say. And and it's just seemed like chapter two. Scott's a big Star Wars fan. And, you know, I had written Star Wars and I felt like, OK, it was time for the Empire Strikes Back. And nice. that was kind of the the inspiration. Yeah, you could you could squeak a tw- trilogy out of this thing, maybe even a saga if if you keep going. Yeah, that that sounds painful <laughs> right now. But the metaphor does suggest <laughs> that at some point there needs to be Return of the Jedi. Yeah, well, one of when you I remember, um, you know, uh, when the first book came out, uh, you know, you broke some news. You had discovered Jeff's biological father, um, and that was kind of a really big breaking news. And today, actually, the timing is perfect because you had breaking news and that you discovered uh, something about a tiny little boat that Jeff was 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 buying. So tell us more about this. I think it's called a dinghy. Is that right? A dinghy? Exactly. <laughs> well, as I was sort of like charting his personal transformation, you know, the guy who, you know, I had interviewed and who who was the leader of Amazon 2010, 2012, you know, he never really went for big, extravagant personal indulgences. A lot of his, um, a lot of his like assets or you know uh, luxuries tended to be like time-saving things, a home in New York so he could crash there when he was on the East Coast, or an airplane, a personal jet, you know, as one has uh, to uh, to save himself time. But he wasn't a boat guy, and and so a couple things happened which made it just made me sort of wonder if he was embracing that lifestyle he was photographed on david geffen's yacht or it would, maybe it was barry diller's yacht probably both and um you know and and of course uh lauren sanchez his his new partner you know moved in those circles and at the same time i i saw a facebook post uh from ocean co actually it was someone observing an ocean co yacht um and it was like the whole of what they described as like the largest sailing yacht in existence and that sent me down this path of wondering, well, I should say people were speculating that Bezos had bought another boat and that. And I was looking into that and that proved to be incorrect. But yes, he he has he is spending hundreds of billion, millions of dollars to build a, a, one of the biggest sailing yachts in the world. And part of the revelation uh, in the book is it has a support yacht because you can't land a helicopter on the sailing yacht because of the mass. So he's, he's got a, he's building two boats. So, so he kind of brings a, another boat just to hold, hold the helicopter kind of a thing. Very cool. Yeah. I wonder if he'll land some rockets on there at some point. I wonder if uh, <laughs> any of us will be invited to, uh, to to party on the boats. Probably not, I would think. Well, Jason, because of the success of the podcast, we have a jet. And the, the hardest part about it is sharing it with Jason. He always... <laughs> 
he spills the Starbucks on there. Yeah, I could kid comes on and makes yeah. a mess. So, yeah. so if you're going to get a jet, like get your own. It's not really nice to share this. <laughs> it's it's a good goal for Scott to be successful enough to not have to share my jet anymore. Um, <laughs> uh, Brad, I have to be honest. I, like when I first read the yacht thing, I assumed it was a hoax, and mm-hmm. and I I don't mean that like. I don't mean to be light of that, but uh, there actually was, um, I want to say, like a almost equally credible news organization, The Telegraph in London, like in two, 2020, reported that Bill Gates had bought like a $650 million yacht. Um, I don't know if you remember this, but it, it was kind of like a meme for a, for a month. Um, and it, it turned out to be totally untrue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so when I uh, and and largely like in the past, Bill Gates had talked about like what a atrocious thing it is for the Earth and the planet for one you know human being to to own a, a half billion dollar yacht, um, and so it seemed wildly out of character for him to have bought one. Right. Uh, so so then fast forward to this year, and I like we're, we're maybe jumping way ahead, but I it, it kind of feels like there's a little bit of a Jeff Bezos reputation repair program underway, um, an element of which went live today. I think he announced a billion dollar Earth Earth fund, and you know for sure in the shareholder letter he's leaning heavily into employee Legacy. well wellness yeah. and all these things. Right. Uh, it, it just seems like buying a half billion dollar or more yacht like is not does not fit very well in that narrative <laughs> it doesn't do wonders for the for the <laughs> reputation and and yeah the 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 accumulation of wealth is is so controversial and polarizing these days at you know time of like income inequality and suffering through the pandemic um but this is the transformation this is why the book i think is is and it 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 tries to tell an interesting story because it's not just a business story of of you know um a small a, a big company getting bigger it's the story of a person changing and and like a human right who is um you know probably vulnerable to you know everything that you know from flattery to the attention that comes with being really famous to the luxuries that come with extravagant wealth and he didn't start out as a boat guy, but he seems to have ended up as one. And so that is, you know, I, I hope that that it runs that theme runs through the book that, you know, getting getting into Hollywood, you know, bringing Amazon to, to Hollywood, um, owning the Washington Post, fighting with Trump, um, fighting with MBS and Saudi Arabia, that these are all way stations on like an incredible transformation of one of the most famous business people in the world that's been happening really before our eyes. Yeah. And uh, I mean, just side note, like if you're going to pick enemies, I feel like president of the United States and like sovereign leader of Saudi Arabia are like the perfect two guys <laughs> to, <laughs> to make enemies. Um, I do want to you, you alluded to it. I want to jump right into the structure of the book. So it's interesting this time you um, you sort of broke the narrative up into these three big chunks. You have the invention chunk, the leverage chunk and the in- invin- invincibility chunk. Can you kind of walk us through the the thought process there and what what uh, readers should expect. Yeah, sure. I mean, one it was an incredibly challenging book to organize because as you guys can appreciate, it's all happening at once, right? Marketplace and Alexa and India and Hollywood and groceries, transportation, advertising, 
And then the personal stuff, Blue Origin, Washington Post, HQ2, the personal scandal. I mean, you know, and, and readers want to read a chronological story. And if you're going to describe a story of change, you know, you start at the beginning and, you know, the caterpillar morphs into the butterfly. Um, and so th that was a useful way to organize it. Um, I kind of fit it into a narrative chronology, but invention is essentially the new stuff. It's the story of Alexa, the, the retail technologies like the ghost store, the uh, expansion into India and Mexico, um, and then uh, Hollywood and, and also Jeff's ownership of the Washington Post, a little bit of AWS. Um, and I, and I, and that's like, or I think of that as fundamentally 2010 to 2015 with a lot of fast forwards leverage or really operating leverage is the acceleration of the core business and how, you know, Bezos and his lieutenants built these platforms at where the revenues were able to grow as they slowed down the growth of the fixed costs. And they did that by building these self-service platforms um, like Marketplace or, you know, the automation, the fulfillment centers or the algorithms that govern the drivers or the ad system, you know, that lead to tremendous growth, but also have some really significant unintended side effects, exploding hoverboards or fraud in the ad system or, um, you know, uh, accidents on the roads. So that's that's part two. And then invincibility for part three, I was sort of trying to come up with a, a way to describe the, the last part of the book, which includes HQ2 and the National Enquirer drama and antitrust in the pandemic. And I probably cycled through a bunch of names and I thought, you know what, these are all great stories, but none of it slowed Amazon down at all. You know, the, the company, if anything, grew more in the past four years than at any time in its history, at least in terms of headcount growth and market cap and sales growth. And so I can't, I just struck upon like, this company's invincible. They keep making mistakes and keep steering into controversy and it never seems to hurt them. So that, that's where I, that's where I kind of came up with that. That makes uh, total sense. And I really enjoyed that structure, I have to say, because I, I probably opened the book expecting sort of a chronology of everything that happened since the last book. Um, but I found myself really enjoying being able to follow each each individual thread in its entirety, sometimes going back further than um, than I expected and, and kind of giving you that whole story. Uh, right. I, I like to think I follow the company pretty closely, but I still you connected a bunch of dots for me that, that, that was interesting and useful. And at, at one point during the book, I kind of said like, man, this is a little bit like, uh, I'm, I'm horrible at American history, but I imagine, uh, the people that are well-versed in American history, like still read, uh, David McCullough, mm -hmm. 1776 and, and find it enjoyable and dramatic. Um, and in the same way, like I knew most of the facts, mm -hmm. but like, uh, still like putting it together in a, in a cohesive story, uh, was, was sort of fun for me. It made me remember a bunch of things. And then for almost every story, you uncovered new things that I didn't know. So yeah. that I, I thought well, that I was it. joking about star Wars, but sometimes I thought of it really as like the Godfather part two, which is like, it continues the, the story. Uh, it picks up from the last book continues the story, but I do have flashbacks like the early years of Dave Clark in the operations division, um, or Bezos ripping up a document in 2009 and, and chucking it down the table uh, at an employee to illustrate how dramatically his uh, his CEO style has changed. So, yeah, flashbacks and flash forwards.
one of the um, so so I've worked with a ton of large companies, and the thing that always amazes me is even as Amazon's gotten so big, you know, they just passed like a million people, I think, in the company. Um, they're still so agile, and they can still invent at scale. Um, and you know, when you did that kind of kind of married um, invention and invincibility, you know, you know that that kind of you know having watched them, they just don't really miss a step. They make some mistakes, but it doesn't seem to hurt them. Uh, I think a lot of it is this culture that they've built. Um, what What are some of the cultural elements you've picked out as you've written both books that you think they yeah. kind of, and, and then my follow-up, I'll go ahead and ask my follow-up is, you know, with, with Bezos leaving, do you think that's so baked in that it will yeah. continue? Or do you think that, that he's kind of the core of it? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, Bezos, particularly lately, likes to call himself an inventor. And and he is an inventor. He's come up with, you know, we talked about you know, Alexis kind of springing from his mind and, and, and some bad ideas like the Fire Phone too. But what he's really created is a system of invention, like a culture that seems to to be fertile enough that, you know, it, lots of decentralization, um, lots of employees or teams moving quickly, sometimes in competition with another. And I, he's he's put together a lot of the building blocks. And, you know, yeah, people talk about the 14 leadership principles and folks are probably familiar with those. Mm-hmm. But it's it's also, you know, the just the the customs and the the rituals of Amazon, um, starting every uh, meeting with the meditational reading of a six page document or, um, you know, the quarterly business reviews and the OP, OP1 and OP2. Um, and, and the fact that senior executives can kind of hover above everything, but then audit individual business units when they get an email uh, from a customer complaining about a problem. And the idea of single-threaded leaders or a sort of a, a team leader whose sole responsibility is the success of that team was kind of the CEO of their own fiefdom. And all this stuff... You know, the culture can be kind of criticized as mean, and I think sometimes it is, but it has been remarkably effective, right? And and they've the reason I call it Amazon Unbound is because Amazon's been kind of immune from the the laws of gravity that can often bring down or slow down large companies. And it's un, it's a bit unbound from that. And I was sort of playing with that. Um, and I think it's the culture that Bezos has invented. And to answer the second question. It's a it's that it's like the great challenge and, and question for Andy Jassy, you know, because Bezos made it work because people respected and admired and maybe feared him a little bit, you know, and he could keep the plate spinning and then return to them and, you know, spin them again, um, disappear for a while, come back. Now, he's not going anywhere. He says he's going to be executive chairman. So, you know, maybe it doesn't make a difference. I think eventually he does drift away slowly. Um, but you know, Jassy doesn't have the same founder's magic. So yeah, I can't answer it. It's just, I'll just say it's a good question. Does the culture work as effectively when the, the magic of the founder isn't, uh, isn't, uh, you know, present as it is now. Yeah. I kind of wonder if he'll be able to keep his hands out of there. That's, uh, you know, I, I've done the same thing on a very, very tiny set scale and it's, uh, it's a hard discipline to kind of, it's almost like putting one of your kids up for adoption or something. There's, there's, right. a hard, there's not a great right. analogy for, for, you know, think of all the time and effort he's put in to hold those but reins. You didn't, you didn't have a, a luxury yacht to go retreat to, you know, True. Yeah. or, or a $10 billion philanthropy. So I, I don't know. It'll be interesting. There'll be a, and also a reputation on the line with the space company that hasn't produced anything. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of other stuff that could draw Bezos away. Yeah. Uh, side note on that one, that one uh, you know, people are always 
I get asked these questions all the time, like what, what event, how does someone eventually beat Amazon? Um, and, and they ask in the context of retail. And one of my hypotheses is always, uh, that, that retail gets to be too irrelevant and uninteresting for them that, mm, that yeah. you know, that they, it, it just doesn't get the attention anymore because some, so many of these new things become so successful. Yeah, I think that's true. And, and also, you know, they get so big and they have so many constituencies that they need, that they have to make choices. And I think a good example is how, you know, the retail, um, you know, the consumer division has really tilted towards marketplace and, and the, the opportunities of third, for third party sellers and global sellers. And one of the things that suffered a little bit, I think, is Amazon's relationship with brands and brands feeling like Amazon can be a safe space to sell. Um, you know, we've seen that with Nike, et cetera, and that has created opportunity for, you know, companies like Shopify and, um, you know, and, and, and like those competitors don't, can't take on Amazon, you know, the, the whole thing, but there's a lot, little avenues of opportunity for competitors who want to focus because Amazon's doing so much. It, it can't satisfy everyone. Yeah, no, I, uh, for sure. Um, one of the the big topics uh, in the book that that was kind of fun to to have laid out was the whole invention of the Alexa. Um, and I'll confess, I wasn't quite aware of how directly uh, Jeff was involved in the yeah. original ideation. Um, yeah. So that was fascinating. And and frankly, at the very beginning, when Scott asked if you broke any big news in the new book, I was expecting you to say that you you uncovered the voice actress behind Alexa. Well, I thought he was going there, but then he brought up the yacht. But I'm happy to tell that. St- <laughs> I'm happy to tell that story. Yeah, yeah, please do. OK, well, actually, it sort of started with me thinking for this book, how will I ever top the the discovery of the biological dad from the first book? And if you guys remember, um, and, and of course, you can't top that. And sadly, there are no uh, there are no hidden long lost relatives to unearth. Um, and but I thought, you know, I remembered that Susan Bennett was the voice actress behind Siri. And that was a big revelation in 2013. And no one had ever asked the question, well, who the heck is coming out of the Echo speakers? And, you know, long story short. So I, I put that as one of my goals to figure that out. And in the in the in my research, and yeah, Alexa was totally Jeff's idea. It was an email to executives. Can we create a twenty dollar computer whose brains are in the cloud that's completely controllable by voice? In the book, I have his first whiteboard sketch of a of an Echo speaker. Um, and but one of the things they did early on was they bought a Polish company called Evona. And that was the, um, let me get this right, the text-to-speech engine. So they created synthetic voices. And, you know, so I was, I was like, okay, I'll start there in trying to figure out who the voice is. And I, I learned that actually they had contracted with the same studio in Atlanta that did the Siri voice, a company called GM Voices. And I spent, you know, months trolling LinkedIn and figuring, you know, trying to contact people in, you know, who worked there, who knew people who worked there. And I, I heard little tidbits. She, you'll never find out. Um, it's a it's a closely guarded secret. But she's a singer, uh, and she lives in Colorado. And then mm-hmm. finally, I, I got a couple of more clues, and I found I, I found I got her name, Nina Raleigh. And I went to her website, 
I wasn't completely sure, but I went to her website and she had a clips of herself doing advertisements uh, from years ago before she started working for Amazon. And I clicked play on a couple of them. And I was like, my God, that is the voice of Alexa right there. <laughs> and uh, I called her up and uh, she, she, you know, immediately like, uh, you know, awkwardness, like felt like high school. Um, and she said she wasn't allowed to talk to me. And, you know, in some uh, weird, awkward way, it was like the final bit of confirmation that I needed. But and then I asked Amazon if I could talk to her and they said no. And, you know, you could kind of put the pieces together. Yeah. Uh, and side note, how the heck did you get that diagram, by the way? I asked Amazon for it and they gave it to me. Oh, that's a clever yeah. way. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. ask them for things all the time and they almost never give <laughs> You know, and I interviewed Greg Hart, who was Jeff's TA and who built the Alexa business in the early years. And, you know, he was he was uh, he had never given an interview before, I think, about the early days of Alexa. And it was it was a lot of the I think the untold story there. Um, and, yeah, a lot of it maybe. Yeah, was actually like credit to Amazon. Right. They 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 decided that it was you know better to work with me and to tell some elements of the story i think i think big tech companies realize now that you know when they when they shut the door to everyone you know the depictions aren't aren't you know let's put it this way if they cooperate at least they're relaying their side of the story and things are likely to reflect their point of view and so on this one they they agreed to cooperate uh, very cool and uh uh, another thing that I learned in that version of the story, a, um, the original Kindle had a microphone in it that wasn't used. Well, it's like the second or third. I can't remember. The, uh, maybe the third version. Got yeah. it. Yeah. Um, but it sounds like the the germ of the idea um, was starting to form, like, e even in this this uh, vestibule, uh, vestigial feature yeah. in, in the Kindle. And it sounds like Jeff fought for that feature when when uh, the product team wanted to axe it yeah yeah i mean he he's he's a star trek fan like uh like scott and he um you know he always thought that we would talk to our computers one day like like the star trek computer and that was like a big part of the vision and the reason why he fought for it to be more conversational and not just a music player or or a thing that recites the weather he really wanted a conversational agent and actually, today I would say Amazon's not not even there yet. I mean, my I don't know about your your guys' Alexa, but mine's dumb as a rock. So you know they they still have a lot of work to do there. Yes, yeah, still 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 working. Um, the so folks, if you haven't read the first book, so go go get that one. So go get the anything store. And the the thing I always enjoy about Brad's writing is it's kind of so you're you're tech savvy, so you kind of you're not afraid to go into some of the technology side of it. Uh, but then you're also an investigative reporter, and that's where you find all these really cool tidbits and the the real story behind. So so I always enjoy you doing that. Uh, on that side, you cover in the book, you cover a bunch of the the rough spots. Um, wh which of those do you think has been has had any impact? So, so the ones are kind of the antitrust, which is Jason Jason's favorite con uh, kind of thing to talk about. Um, losing the Jedi, uh, you know, kind of over politics. I think um, the HQ two thing was, I think everyone agrees, was a bit of a debacle. They kind of over overplayed that. Um, are any of those things unraveling them at all or bother them at all, or just doesn't seem to bother them at all? The three you listed, I mean, the antitrust threat is still in the future. HQ2, uh, they suffered some bad press and it went away quickly. Um, um, what was the other thing that you Jedi. mentioned? 
yeah, Jedi, uh, they might, the government might reaward that contract. Uh, a judge ruled that uh, the legal scrutiny will continue and we might see the Pentagon basically just start the process all over again. So none of those things so far, I would say antitrust may be the most, but I would, I would put the, the controversy over the quality of work in the fulfillment centers yeah. and the unionization effort, even though Amazon won that in Alabama, that to me feels more impactful because really, you know, none of these things make a difference unless people start to feel or think twice or feel ambivalent about clicking the buy now button. And I, I look, the, the, the results in the last quarter were stellar. So clearly it's not having much of an impact, but you do see mostly, I think, because of the, the labor uh, um, tangling some, stain on the Amazon reputation. And I think the labor stuff is more important and has had more of an impact than the other things that you mentioned. Yeah. And I think the, um, I think the ultimate play is they'll eventually be able to get rid of the labor with robots. And, and that oddly, that may be a, the best political move, you know, even though there'd be a lot of jobs lost at, yeah. you know, robots don't, Pee in bottles and isn't that years yeah, off? Form unions. I mean, how how long before robot before you can have a ghost fulfillment center with no workers? Well, you can get it down. You know, if the Kiva system gets it down to just the pickers and packers, yeah. which is which is a very small, you know, a fractional. I think it's like a quarter. Jason, fact check me. Like twenty five percent of the mm -hmm. the people footprint. Um, which is funny. It goes back to your first book, and yeah. uh, I just saw today or maybe it was yesterday that Amazon's investing a fair amount in a robot factory, which I've kind of made my spidey sense tingle a little bit. That's the, you know, uh, a, it feels a little bit like the Terminator, uh, but then B, you know, you, you don't start building a factory for, for these things until, you, unless you're going to really start scaling them up. So it'd be right. interesting to see if, if they'd go that way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there, I, there will be another political storm about that just as there were for the cashierless robots, right. Or the cashierless stores, um, you know, be, yeah, the, it, that's going to make Amazon a target in a different way. Yeah, it, it is interesting. I think there are parts of their business um, that will, you know, that Amazon could certainly um, automate a lot of labor out of pretty quickly. But there are other parts of their business that that that's not in the short term horizon, right? Like I, I'm a big believer in driverless cars, but driverless last mile, um, or you know, yeah. humanless last mile is right. is going to be a long time. And at this point, like the labor force in last mile is growing faster than the, right. the, the fulfillment center labor force. Yeah. yeah. And well, we should say, right. A contract labor force. And, and that's another threat to Amazon. Like, well, it's another critical decision. At, at what point, you know, do they feel like those drivers need to be employees or do they, does the criticism get much louder because, um, you know, they can't control the last mile or or they're exerting so much control over those drivers in terms of the uniforms and the, the surveillance cameras and the rules that ultimately, you know, the the lo lawsuits basically, I mean, FedEx fought these battles for years, but ultimately a judge somewhere says, you know, like like it, they have with Uber drivers. These are employees. You got to start treating them like like employees. Yeah. Although Uber found a way out of that is it, if you spend 200 million dollars, you can just make your own laws. Right. Um, <laughs> right. And and Jeff has that kind of money. Uh, but uh, I did want to ask you a question about that, because you you kind of um, painted a picture that like anti-union is is m much more in Amazon's DNA than than maybe was like super obvious. Right. And you you highlighted that like they made decisions about how to scale their 
their last mile in their logistics based uh, on, you know, avoiding uh, the the traditional um, fulfillment model, which like is heavily unionized. Right. Right. Um, right. And, and I, I'm kind of curious if you have a hypothesis, why? Like you, you had an interesting sentence in the book that kind of, you know, uh, made me think for a second. I'm not sure Jeff is just like fundamentally unions are bad for America and I don't want unions because then I can't exploit the workers the way I want. Like I almost wonder if it goes back to his day one philosophy and just the, this fear that if you if you, you know, get this large entrenched workforce, um, you know, which is often epitomized by by unions, um, that it it reduces your ability to be as agile as right. as uh, right. he aspires to be. There's a canonical story inside Amazon. I tell this in the in the Dave Clark uh, logistics section of the book of of like, um you know, one of the early fulfillment centers, 2001, 2002, and Dave Clark and a colleague named Arthur Valdez are like themselves in a rider truck delivering the last batch of packages to the UPS facility. And I think it's Lexington through a snowstorm, eating Burger King on the way. And they get there, you know, with Christmas in the, in the back of this truck and the and the um, the Teamsters at UPS won't let them in because they're not union workers. And eventually they get managers to, to allow them to come in and the union guys are banging on the truck and, and yelling at them. And that is, is an, you know, a story that's passed on like lore at Amazon because yeah, what you, what you were saying, um, Jason, it's, it's like uh, they want to be flexible. The customer is almighty. They want to fulfill their promises to customers and they view, you know, an intermediating force like a union as as you know, interfering with that, and and I and Amazon fought me bitterly on this because I quote J, uh, Jeff saying to a colleague, an HR colleague in the book, that one of the greatest dangers to Amazon is an entrenched and hourly workforce, and he was looking at the the automakers um, and other you know manufacturers and and concluding that you know, the unions were were really impeding their ability to be flexible and to innovate. And there are little things that he encoded in the worker relationship at Amazon. Uh, For example, you know, you, the raises stop after three years, unless you're promoted, that doesn't get a lot of attention. It seems really unfriendly, frankly, but he just doesn't want employees sticking around, getting entrenched, getting comfortable, possibly organizing. And, you know, and, and it's maybe a little bit lacking in empathy, um, but it's this ta- brutal kind of ruthless tac- tactical decision that uh, Amazon is better off having a direct relationship with its employees. Well, one, one question I wanted to just kind of explore is in lately here on the show, there's been increased tension between Shopify and Amazon. Did you pick up on any of that as you were writing the book? You know, I, I I I didn't really veer in that direction. I, I would say that you know the 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 ten and you know now I'm like in the territory where you guys are probably you know much more deep you know than I am. Um, but I, I what I sensed was that brands felt increasingly uncomfortable, and the, the tension is between Western brands and a marketplace that seems to favor 
overseas sellers and, and scrappy newcomers and people with lower cost structures. And, and you know, the, the brands on Amazon are like crazy, right? It's like, sometimes you feel like maybe there's some software coming up with some of these names and the, and the big brands, you know, who maybe charge a premium uh, for their label uh, don't feel comfortable there. And they don't feel like their brand is protected and they don't feel like their, their prices are protected. And that's maybe more the tension. And Shopify has come in, you know, to take advantage of that. And Amazon, which, you know, fights on all fronts all the time, you know, has identified the competitive incursions, tried to do some things to kind of shore up that flank. Um, I haven't spent enough time looking at Shopify and I'm looking forward to doing that a little bit more. Uh, but that seems like a tremendous success story. And the virtue for Amazon is that when they get hauled in front of Congress, you know, to to get to Jason's favorite topic, you know, they can point to um, com- strong competitors on all fronts. And it's not just Google and Microsoft in the cloud or Walmart in retail. But now it's a company like Shopify, which is a real competitive threat when it comes to, you know, online retail and representing brands online. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned the brand thing because we've also followed on the show really closely. And we've we've had uh, a couple folks representative of this as there's these new kind of like super combinations of FBA sellers, they call them, that have, right. you know, like Thrashio and... I think what have they raised, Jason? Like two billion dollars globally. We're we're tracking now um, uh, to go, yeah. Yeah, yeah, to go buy these little micro brands that are kind of born and uh, on Amazon. So that that's kind of you know, if anything, that's going to accelerate it. <clears throat> Excuse me. How about um, uh, you mentioned ads? Anything interesting going on in the Amazon ads world? I, and so in in Amazon Unbound, I tell the story of the ad business, and at, you know it was so interesting how they started out a decade ago, and they were Bezos was skeptical of ads. Um, he, you know he thought it could interfere with the customer experience, that it could jeopardize you know the the main revenue model of you know selling things on Amazon.com, and they experimented. They went through banner ads. They went to uh, sponsored links that send you off the site to like Nordstrom, you know, mm-hmm. or or another yeah. retailer, and then finally they kind of rediscover the Google gold mine and start search advertising. And first, it's the bottom of the search page, and then it's on the side of the search page. <laughs> and here's the interesting point: Bezos himself. Uh, makes a decision to start toying with them at the top of search results. And they study it and they determine that there is a decrease in customer satisfaction and in customers purchasing items. The the ads on the top of search results are meaningfully like harmful to the customer experience, small, but, but trackable. And this is a little bit of a turning point in the book, I think, because Bezos says, you know, this impact would have to be implausibly large to really outweigh the gold mine, the the new revenue source. And he agrees to do something that, you know, arguably is not a great customer experience. If you Mm -hmm. look at searches, the search results on Amazon, it's it's kind of, you know, an over merchandised like it's ads and private label stuff and, you know, pay for play. But the the revenue stream is so enticing to him because he can invest in movies and TV shows. He can build the next Alexa. He can expand internationally. And maybe that is the turning point, the inflection point in Amazon being fully customer focused and really compromising a little bit on the customer experience to pursue these grander goals of world domination. 
Yeah. Um, it, it was interesting too. uh, well, a on the, I, I did want to touch on one thing on the ad thing first. Um, the, we get asked all the time, we, you know, we do all these Amazon talks and, and we still have to debunk that Amazon's not profitable. Um, and, and so we talk about, you know, obviously the marketplace is overwhelmingly profitable and, and AWS. Um, but I have a hypothesis that the ad business is now as much or more profitable than AWS. Yeah. Um, yeah. and I, you know, uh, it, it, it's interesting that that uh, Jeff is like ex- accepting the revenue even at the expense of customer. When you think of kind of the original premise that will be yeah. the most customer centric. Um, I mean, when, just on that point, Jason, like AWS profits go into building more AWS, right? You have to keep building data centers advertising, like what are the fixed costs, right? They built an auction system and they basically, you know, I call that chapter the gold mine in the backyard because it's there all along and they just have to go kind of dip into it. Yeah, I I will say there's one inconvenient truth in in that. Like in general, I like to say like, oh gosh, that ad business is 96% margin for them because there's no, (laughs) like, you know, there's almost no costs against it. Uh, the the one inconvenient truth in that fact is Amazon is also the largest advertiser on Google. So like there's a right. way in which you can almost think of it as arbitrage that yeah. they yeah. that they buy eleven billion dollars worth of customers from Google and then sell it for twenty billion dollars on Amazon. Right. Right. Um which yeah, so it, it is interesting. I uh a, a couple of the things that also jumped out at me, you um like uh I know Scott wants to go deep into the antitrust uh story and obviously you know Amazon you know often says like hey we we don't seed search we would never you know play games with prioritizing search and we never use uh uh brand sales data to inform our own private label but you you had people go on the record in both cases uh, yeah. that are ex Amazonian saying we absolutely did do that I mean, I I think, yeah, the truth is the inconvenient truth for Amazon is that it's a decentralized place and employees are given ambitious goals and they're trying to keep their jobs. And the the safeguards, the guardrails weren't there for a couple of years. And it's not just my book. Um, Yeah, it's in my book. And I've got I had employees showing me the data, the spreadsheets that they, they took you know, from looking at third-party sellers to go build private brands. But it's also been reported elsewhere. And frankly, I think Amazon said in, in, in D.C. that they were going to study it. And I've never seen anything. I don't know why they are incapable um, of admitting an error um, and announcing maybe a new set of precautions because it really does call into question the trust that third-party sellers have um, in, in the marketplace. But no, clearly... You know, they they ha- they were exploiting their data advantage. I don't know if it was that significant. I mean, what they might say is that, look, every retailer has the data at their disposal and you don't necessarily need the third party sales data to go, you know, look at Nielsen report or whatever to see, you know, what the customer trend is. But it clearly for a time gave Amazon an advantage in building that private label business and in, and in prioritizing their private label brands, giving them a head start in search results. Yeah. 
Um, another one of my favorite topics is fulfillment. Um, and you and I have had this conversation probably for 20 years. And I've, uh, every year on this podcast, we do a, a prediction and I've, I've historically predicted that they'll, they'll compete more directly with, with FedEx and UPS. It's taken longer than I thought it would, but, um, I think, I think m- most people can kind of see that. Um, did you get any, any kind of vibes off of what's going on in the fulfillment side? I don't, I, I don't see that in the short term just because their own needs are ramping so quickly that, um, you know, it's hard to imagine them being able to kind of offer, turn around and offer that to third parties. And if they did, they get into the awkward situation of, you know, peak comes along and well, absolutely, of course, Amazon's going to start, you know, prioritize its own packages, particularly you get closer to Christmas and, you know, and suddenly UPS runs out of capacity or FedEx and, you know, that would be just awkward. Right. So I don't, I don't know that I see that in the near future. Um, I think Amazon, yeah, is its own biggest customer for its logistics arm. And I don't, you know, and it's only customer. I, I don't necessarily see that changing in the short term. Um, but I don't know, maybe we settle that in five years. Yeah, um, that, that that's going to be an interesting one. I mean, even FBA, which is, I would argue, wildly successful for them. Um, you know, you you still see like them them strain to scale that and, yeah. you know, kind of curtail the amenities that they offer to FBA. And during the uh, pandemic, they yeah. did that, right? Yeah. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Um, the. Yeah. Uh, we are running uh, up on time. I want to make sure uh, that we, we get all the good stuff in. Um, are there any favorite stories or topics you have from the book that we failed to ask you about? There's Brad? One, okay. Here's the, here's the, one of the stories I, I like the most, the, the story of the single cow burger. Um, you know, we talk about Bezos, the inventor, you know, his, his love for new technologies, but he really is like this maniacal sponsor of, of all sorts of bizarre, wacky ideas. And basically in like 2015, he reads a Washington Post article about how a burger can contain the meat from like a hundred cows. And the article says that making a, a burger from a single cow would be hard and expensive. And those, of course, you know, those are the key words for, for Bezos. And he authorizes the, the creation of a single cow burger inside Amazon Fresh and then he like he 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 taste tests the 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 early burgers and he like rejects them for being too fatty or hard to grill and uh, and he makes everyone's life miserable on the team and you know and it, it illustrates a couple of things one you know as he has gotten wealthier maybe he's he like has a little bit lost the the touch and the taste of the common man dare we say uh, but that it's not just technology like he's this advocate for all sorts of new things inside amazon and he is kind of capable of turning up um you know like uh like uh, samantha and bewitched i guess rink did she twinkle her nose i can't remember you know at the desk of any unsuspecting employee and suddenly their life is you know they're they're off searching for a single cow burger so to speak and uh, to me it was like this weird bizarre wacky delightful story oh and by the way that thing is still for sale and that hasn't been a game changer and yet you had the ceo of the company and probably at the time one of the wealthiest people in the world spending all this time trying to advocate for it 
Yeah, I have to say, though, just like superficially, it sounds like a brilliant idea. We, My family rushed out to try the single cow burger, I have to admit. <laughs> um, How was it? How was uh, it? it? It was good. And, you know, uh, I'm not, I can't remember if you mentioned this in the book or not, but the... Uh, you know, people have different preferences for their temperature of meat. And, and like traditionally you have to cook ground beef much, uh, higher than other flavors of beef because of the mm. risk of mad cow because of all those cows in there. So you can actually, it's safer to eat that single cow burger more rare if that's your yeah. preference. Yeah. I mean, he, he looked at all that stuff and he, yeah. he advocated for a couple of different varieties of it. And, um, I, you know, I, it, it is a little distillation of life at Amazon. Yeah, you, uh, well, the distillation to me was like, you relayed the conversation when he was, you know, he's like, how hard could it be? And I'm like thinking like, that's got to be the worst question to ever get from Jeff Bezos. (laughs) Totally, totally. Um, Well, uh, you also, uh, during that story, you kind of highlighted his his, uh, increasingly exotic taste. You talked about the iguana and whatnot, and it reminded me of a story in your first book of the the black uh, ink octopus breakfast I, uh which was also a fun Oh that's callback. right. Wasn't that the CEO of Woot maybe? It was Matt Rowage. Yeah. yeah. Uh yeah. I I talked to him occasionally and uh, uh I always remind him of that story because of you. Mm-hmm. Um well listen Brett we could talk uh all night uh but it has happened again we have used up all of our allotted time uh so uh we're we're going to have to leave the audience wanting a little bit more. Um, as always, if, if uh, folks enjoyed this show, we sure would appreciate that five-star review on iTunes. Um, and if you have any questions or comments about the show, please uh, hit us up on Twitter or Facebook. Yeah, the name of Brad's book is Amazon Unbound. It's available now at your favorite booksellers and hardcover. It's on e-readers. And then also the audiobook is available for those of you that like to uh, listen to things while you commute. Brad, uh, if you um, work in, uh, obviously people can find you at Bloomberg. So you're right there on their TV, but, but do you, um, where's your favorite uh, place to kind of, for people to check what you're up to? Is it well, Twitter or Brad, Brad dash stone is, is my website. I'm, I'm at Brad stone on Twitter. And let me just thank you guys. You know, you both have been sort of mentors to me in the, in the wild uh, uh, world of Amazon and e-commerce. And it's like a pleasure to be on this podcast. Thanks, Brad. We really appreciate you taking time to join us tonight. Okay. Thanks, guys. It was entirely our pleasure. And until next time, happy commercing. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com. 